And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honour to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. I'll do please keep that open. The other day, uh, somebody rang me up and they asked if I'd got the email they'd sent a few weeks ago because I hadn't replied to it. I said, what email? I checked back. Turned out I just deleted it because I thought it was, um, it was irrelevant. It was one of these mass circulars. It was about some conference. I wasn't going to the conference, so I just archived it. But I hadn't spotted there was an attachment. And the attachment was a letter to me. Let us not make that mistake with this Bible passage today, Malachi 2, 1 to 9. Because at first glance, we may be tempted to press delete because it looks like it's an email to somebody else. So if you look, it begins 2 verse 1. And now, O priests. So we've been copied in on an email to some priests in the 5th century BC. And we think, what could be more irrelevant? In fact, someone said to me just before the service today, he said, I read the passage before coming to church and I thought, What's the point of coming? This isn't about me. This is for you, pointing at me. (laughs) At least they read it before the service. That's a good thing to do. But don't press the delete button. It's actually to all of us, as we'll see. So Romans 15 verse 4 says, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. It's written for us. So when we read uh, this passage with New Testament specs on, so that's to say... Uh, When we look at how this is fulfilled in the New Testament, we see it applies in three ways. And you'll see this on your outline inside your service sheets. So first, it points us to Jesus. And that is what we need more than anything else. Um, When we come to church, to be directed back to him, to recenter our lives on him. Second, it teaches us about pastor teachers today, who, like the priests back then, were leaders of God's people. And third, it applies to all of us as believers. Given in Christ, we are all now priests, if we trust in him. So the point is, we mustn't skim and delete. Uh, This message is for us. We need to read it carefully. But before we get to us today, we need to understand 
What was it saying to them back then? That's like Bible study 101, isn't it? So, the passage begins with a warning, as you'll see on the outline in the sheets. Verse 1. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, to give honour to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then, and on it goes. We saw last week that the priests and the people were dishonouring the Lord. They were despising his name. How were they doing that? Well, they were offering him blemished sacrifices. We saw that they were tossing him the leftovers. They were giving him the plates to lick. And it was the gravest insult because God is a great king. They should have feared him. They should have honoured him. But God in his mercy was giving them now a chance to repent. So verse 2, to, to listen to his rebuke, to take it to heart, to repent, to give honour to his name. Staggeringly merciful of God given how they had treated him. But if they didn't repent, look how it goes on in verse 2. Then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So if they didn't repent, God would send his curse on them. His curse is a devastating weapon of judgment. It's the opposite of blessing. And this process had already begun. God says he would also rebuke their offspring. So without descendants, that would be the end of the priesthood. And he said he would spread dung on their faces. When our kids were young, I remember um, one half term, we were up north, we were visiting my mum, and she sort of lived out in a little village in the countryside, and we, we were walking in some fields. And one of our kids fell over... And he put his hands out, and he went, his hands went straight into some cow pads. And he's got quite a sensitive sense of smell, and he was retching just for the smell of this cow's pat on his hands. Imagine if you went face down in it. You got dung on your face, you big disgrace, as one song says. Disgusting for anyone absolutely disastrous if you're a priest because this would have made them ritually unclean, unable to perform their duties. And verse 3 says they would be taken away with it, that is outside the camp. So what happened is when animals were sacrificed on the altar, the unwanted bits were then taken outside the camp and they were burned. So if you give you a reference, Exodus 29.14 says, the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. And so God was saying the priests, if they didn't repent, the priests would suffer the same fate. They would be removed, (coughs) taken from the sanctuary to the rubbish dump. So that was the message to the Old Testament priests in Malachi's day. If you don't repent, you will be cursed. Now, why have we been copied in on this? What's it got to do with us? Well, when we put our New Testament specs on, when we read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, we see these three levels of fulfillment on the sheet there. First, it points us to Jesus. 
Jesus said of the Old Testament scriptures, John 5.39, it is they that testify about me. And so here, the failure of the Old Testament priests after the return from exile, it pointed to the need for something better. Someone better. A better priest. Psalm 110 verse 4, for example, it foretold the coming of a deliverer who would be both king and priest. Now, unlike these priests back then, Jesus did honour the Lord 100%. But despite that, despite that, the shock is that the, the judgment in these verses fell on him. So he became the cursed priest, didn't he? He was cursed by God. He was taken away in disgrace outside the camp as someone unclean. So he was crucified outside the city walls. That's the significance of that. Hebrews 13, 12 says, Jesus suffered outside the gate. Why? Well, because he did it for us. He did it for our salvation. He took the judgment we deserve. Galatians 2.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And so today we should be full of thanks for his love to go to such lengths like that for us. Second, this points us to church leaders. The Old Testament priests were leaders of God's people, as church leaders are today. And so the warning that here is that if they are dishonouring to the Lord, they need to repent or they will be cursed. And we'll come back to that in a moment. And third, it's a warning to us as believers. So all who are in Christ are now priests. We saw this last week, 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says to believers in Christ... You are a royal priesthood. And so if we, like the priests back then, if we are dishonouring to the Lord by bringing him defective sacrifices, tossing in the leftovers, as we saw last week, we must repent. And if we don't repent, it shows that we're not truly God's people. Now, the fate of those who don't repent, we learn here, is to be cursed to be taken away outside the camp. And you remember Jesus used the rubbish dump outside Jerusalem as a picture of hell. And so the fact that Christ has taken the curse for us, it doesn't mean we have immunity to just live as we want now. If we are in Christ, we will show it by repenting. Religious extremism is, of course, a massive problem in today's world. So religious extremism expressed in hatred, expressed in violence. Biblical Christianity rejects all such hatred and all such violence. But, but biblical Christianity is no less committed or passionate. So true religion is not religion which is moderate, doesn't go too far, doesn't take it too seriously, isn't committed... A great king deserves all we have. And that means repenting of being half-hearted and tossing God the leftovers. How does that message make you feel? Uh, How did you feel last week, if you were here with us or if you heard the talk online? Malachi is a a very hard-hitting little book, isn't it? So he's rebuking God's people. He's calling us to repent of half-hearted discipleship. 
and it's hard-hitting stuff. And it's worth just taking a moment to reflect on how we respond to rebukes in the Bible. First, I put on the sheet there, being told off is unpleasant, but necessary. Did you ever enjoy getting told off as a kid? Probably not. Yeah, nobody does. But it's for our good. Well, the book of Hebrews tells us that as a father disciplines his sons for their good, so our heavenly father disciplines us. So Hebrews 12, 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So by encouraging us and rebuking us, God is treating us as his children for our eternal good. Note that it is our Heavenly Father who does the telling off. So I am not the father telling off his kids. I'm one of the kids as well. Secondly, uh, flattering teachers are false teachers. You may have felt last week, you come to church, then you get told off. I'm going I'm to head off. I'm going to find somewhere that has a more positive message. And yeah, you know, there, there are plenty of churches which will just give you the positive. There are plenty of churches which will just tell you, you're amazing, God loves you, he's got a wonderful plan for your life. That's it. But if that's all they say, it's not true, it's not loving, it's not biblical. The Bible has got warning as well as encouragement. And teaching which goes through books of the Bible is going to have both of those, and we need both of those if we're going to stay on the right path. Thirdly, the godly response to rebuke is repentance. If we are rightly convicted of being in the wrong in some way, God calls us to repent. And the mark of God's true people is that we do repent. We take action. So we're not to wallow in uh, sorrow and guilt and feeling condemned. We're to do something. So 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. So sorrow, guilt over sin, that is not a place to settle down, it's not a place to build our house, it is a stepping stone to repentance. Someone texted me after the service last week and they said, look, God has really convicted me about um, my giving, I need to sort my giving, I need to start giving. And they asked, you know, what the barge bank details, so I, I texted back a link for that. A few minutes later, they texted me back and they said, it's all done. That's repentance, isn't it? That's repentance. I thought it was hugely encouraging that most people were here when we sang the first song today. That's repentance. It's massively encouraging. It's been said that the way to hell is paved with good intentions. Repentance isn't just feeling guilty. It's not just thinking, well, maybe one day I should probably look into this. Repentance is taking action. Tuesday next week, um, October 31st, is Reformation Day. So it was on this day, back in 1517, that the reformer Martin Luther, he nailed his 95 theses to the door of that church in Wittenberg. And this marked the beginning of the Reformation so the rediscovery of the true gospel. 
The first of his 95 theses or statements that he posted up was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the whole life of believers should be repentance. So he's saying repentance is not just how the Christian life begins, but it's how it goes on. But fourthly, a specific rebuke is not always for you. So when we come across rebukes and warnings in the Bible, we should examine ourselves, but we're not always going to be failing in that particular area. So as the expression goes, if the cap fits, wear it, but if it doesn't, don't. You see, the danger is if if you are someone who has a very sensitive conscience, you always assume it's about you. Whereas ironically, the person who should take it to heart often doesn't. Okay, those are just some reflections on responding to biblical rebukes. Let's get back to the the passage. What does God call us to be like? Well, we turn from the cursed priest to the faithful priest. This is our second point. The Old Testament priests were from the tribe of Levi. And God made a covenant with them. So verse 4. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. What did this covenant with Levi involve? Well, from God's side, verse 5, my covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. So that's what God promised his priests. He said, I'll give you life, I'll give you peace. And it's what he gave to them in the early days of the priesthood, when they were faithful. What did God expect from the priests? What were their covenant responsibilities? I'll put three down there on your outline. First, to relate rightly to God, to fear God. So verse 5, it was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. So fear means honouring the Lord, standing in awe of him as the great king he is. So they were to fear God. They were also to walk with God. If you look at verse 6, he says, he walked with me in peace. Walking with God, lovely picture, isn't it, of relationship with God day by day. It's a picture of two friends walking along the road, chatting together, enjoying each other's company. Walking with God. That's the first thing. Second, they were to live a godly life. So verse 6, no wrong was found on his lips. What comes out of our mouths, it reveals what's in our hearts. Verse 6, he walked with me in peace and uprightness. Now, walking uprightly doesn't mean sort of walking with a straight back and your your shoulders back. It means living in a right way, a godly way, godly behavior. And thirdly, the priest was to teach the truth. So verse 6, true instruction was in his mouth. Verse 7, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he's a messenger of the Lord of hosts. And the effect of all this in verse 6 was that he turned many away from iniquity, that is from sin. So his teaching turned many people from sin. So the Old Testament priests, they didn't just offer sacrifices, they also taught the people. I don't know if you're aware of that, but it's part of their job. Um, Leviticus 10 verse 11, God told them, you are to teach the people of Israel. So the priests were teachers. Now, you might be thinking, what was the difference between the priests and the prophets then if they were both teaching God's word? And the difference is this. 
the prophets received the word of the Lord directly by special revelation. The priests taught the word of the Lord, which had been written down in the law, the Torah. So that was the ideal of the priesthood. This was the the faithful priest. What does this mean for us? Time to put our New Testament specs back on. First, it points to Jesus. He is our faithful priest. The book of Hebrews explains in a lot of detail how Jesus as our priest offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice for all our sins. So we're now forgiven. We're cleansed as we trust in him. But Jesus' role as priest is wider than that. He is our teacher. Remember, that was one of the roles of the priest, teacher. He's our teacher. And so like Mary in Luke 10, we are to sit at his feet and we are to learn rather than just being busy in service like Martha was. Jesus is our teacher. He's our example. He's our example who models walking with God and living obedient lives. Second, uh, this picture of the faithful priest is the template for church leaders. So church leaders are pastor teachers whose job is to teach the truth and to be a godly example. Now, teaching the truth is not just tickling people under the chin. It's turning many away from sin. But teaching the truth, we learn here, goes hand in hand with living the truth. It's got to be both and. Now, those are the two criteria for choosing leaders, church leaders in the New Testament. They've got to be able to teach. They've got to be living the life. So we had it in our first reading. Paul said to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, life and teaching. So that's something to pray for church leaders, that we'll be faithful in our living as well as faithful in our teaching. And in choosing leaders, new leaders, it's not just about competence, it's about character. And third, this picture of the faithful priest is a template for all believers as the New Testament priesthood. So this covenant with Levi tells all of us what God expects of each of us. So what is that? Well, what was it on the sheet there? Our first priority is to fear God and to walk with him each day. So each day we need to be reading his word, praying, relating to him throughout the day. So walking with him through the day. Our second priority is what? It is to live in a way that pleases God. To walk uprightly. To be godly. To obey his commands. To turn from sin and pursue righteousness. And our third priority is what? It is to teach the truth. So we all do that, don't we? Colossians 3.16 says, we all teach one another. We encourage one another. We exhort one another. And we're to do that how often? Daily. Hebrews 3.13 says, so that none of us are hardened by sin. Now that includes parents teaching their children, not just letting them find their own way. And we are to teach not just one another as believers, but we are to teach those who don't know Christ. We're to teach them the truth, the truth about God, the good news about Jesus. So God's Old Testament people were, it says in Um, Exodus 19.6, they were a kingdom of priests. And so we, as believers, are priests to the world. So as we teach the truth, as we live the truth as God's people, in our workplaces, in our social circles, in our neighborhoods, we are being priests to the world. 
with the hope and prayer that we might turn many from sin. Well, this is our calling as New Testament priests, all of us. This is the spirit-powered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled new life we are called to live. And when we fall short, what do we do? We confess our sins to God. We rejoice in his forgiveness in Christ. We turn from our sin. We repent and we move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. But the final two verses turn from this picture of the faithful priest to the sad reality in Malachi's day. Verse 8. But you have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And at the end of verse 9, you do not keep my ways, but you show partiality in your instruction. These Old Testament priests were a dead loss. They were completely useless. They had turned aside from God's way. So personally, they weren't walking with God, not keeping his commands. And professionally, they were not teaching what was right. They were teaching what was wrong. So it says here at the end of verse 9, they showed partiality in instruction, favoritism, presumably by telling people what they wanted to hear. And maybe especially the rich and powerful. They just told them what they wanted to hear. So instead of bringing unblemished animals, the people would, the people would wheel in some poor lamb that had been mauled by a wolf and you know, given the last rites. And the priests would be, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Don't worry about it. God won't mind. You know, I know the law says a male without blemish, but you know, that's not meant literally. Not literally. You know, God's loving and merciful. He'll understand. Just give me a tenner. We'll, we'll sort this out. It's fine. They were bad teachers, and they were bad examples. And God says they caused many to stumble by their instruction. But God was not going to let them get away with it. Not at all. So verse 9, God says, So I make you despised and abased, that means humiliated, before all the people. So his judgment would fall on these corrupt priests. They'd be put to shame, they'd be humiliated in a very public way. And so as we put on our New Testament specs for the last time, first it points us where? To Jesus. And the wonder of what he did for us. That although he was the faithful priest, par excellence, he never turned aside from God's way. He was despised, wasn't he? He was abased, he was humiliated before all the people, very publicly. So in his sufferings, people mocked him. They spat on him. They hurled abuse at him. They crucified him. And he did it for us. So his humiliation for our salvation. Second, this is a warning to church leaders that if they turn aside from God's way, if they lead others astray through their teaching, through their example, they will be put to shame at the final judgment. The New Testament repeatedly warns about false teachers who teach error, who are ungodly, who lead people astray. 2 Peter 2.17 says, For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. We mustn't be naive about this. False teachers plagued the early church as they do the church today. 
Teachers who play down the need for repentance. Teachers who say, yeah, it's fine. Just live as you want. God won't mind. He's merciful. It doesn't matter. We must not listen to them. We must hold to the truth. Which brings us thirdly to ourselves. This is a warning to all of us as believers. That we ourselves mustn't turn aside from the way. The narrow way. We need to stay on it. We need to keep walking on the narrow way. Keep holding to the truth. Keep living it out. Keep passing it on. Because otherwise, otherwise we too will be put to shame on the last day. Who is this warning for in particular? Well, as we began to see last week, the person God is warning most of all through Malachi is the believer who is coasting and complacent. Coasting and complacent. So, if I'm half-hearted, if I'm giving God the leftovers, if I'm finding it all a drag, if I'm just doing the bare minimum, if I'm more committed to my work and my hobbies than I am to the Lord, this warning is for me. I'm in the danger zone. I need to take action. I need to repent. I need to start treating the Lord as the great king he is, with wholehearted, whole life commitment. This is a warning to the nominal Christian, so uh, the person who is Christian in name, but not in life. It's a warning to not think that we can just do what we want because we're chosen, because we're loved. It's a call to repent, to start walking with God each day, to start living the life, to start giving him the honor he deserves. We thought, didn't we, last week about some specific areas. We thought about our attitude to godliness, our attitude to church, our giving, our devotional life, because these are places where we can, we can take our spiritual temperature. They're revealing. And if the reading is low, we need to take action. We need to repent. When I was younger, I used to help out as a leader on uh, Christian summer camps. And there would be a talk each day for the teenagers. And the talks followed a set pattern each year. Uh, they'd go through from a talk on creation, talk on sin, judgment, salvation in Christ, how to become a Christian. And then the final talk on the last evening of the whole camp would be on wholeheartedness. Being wholehearted for the Lord. Going for it as a Christian. Malachi would have been a great guy to give that talk. Because that's what his little book, it's what it's all about. Or may we be such wholehearted servants of the great king. Let's pause to reflect on what we've heard and then we're going to join in prayer and Pete's going to lead us in that.